So every time I talk about God as like unconditional being and creation, I always, you know, have the point in the lecture where I tell my students, hey, guess what? God doesn't need you at all. Like you could disappear and he'd be totally fine. Like he doesn't need you to exist. You know, then I usually like, I'll say like, you know, I'll start picking people out in this because I'm mean, I'm a mean <laughs> teacher. And so I start picking people out in the classroom. I start saying, hey, Jake, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you at all. And one time I said, Zoe, guess what? She said, what? I said, God doesn't need you. And she said, well, that's rude. <laughs> and I said, rude that God doesn't need you or rude that I told you? And she said, uh, both. <laughs> So, you know, of course, then I bring it home, you know, God doesn't need you, but that means God wants you. And that's a lot better news. All right, listeners, welcome. Thank you for listening. This is 10,000 Places, where a theologian, a philosopher, and a campus minister go into a room. And then where do they go next? Your guess is as good as Johnson's. Who's Johnson? It's not important. Don't worry about it. I'm Alex Giltner. I'm Lewis Pearson. And I'm Justin Aquila. And we're Johnson, Alex, Lewis, and Justin. And this episode is brought to you by a sponsor who wanted us to announce that if you want a Catholic funeral, make sure to set up your will to help contribute to the church beforehand. You know, <laughs> speaking of... of <laughs> did I get that message right? Do we, you get did. A, do we get a jingle for that? <laughs> Make your will before you go. Choose Catholic funeral. I did a will recently. Why? Because Anything a, you have to tell us? I have a child. <laughs> yeah. Before I knew we get, you had a... That's not news. I knew you had a child. I don't want to get too more, but first, but we oh. want to thank our sponsor. Our sponsor wanted to remain anonymous, but if anyone is interested, we do take sponsorship dollars to help us with our recording costs, but very much appreciated. And that sounds like a joke, but that was the message that we were very much uh, willing to say, yeah, that's a good idea. Give us money and we'll say all kinds of things, guys. (laughs) Is it because you were hosting a baby shower? Like what put it in your mind to get the will ready? So there's a very generous lawyer in our community here in Fort Wayne who does wills for free for University of St. Francis employees. And the one condition is that you give some of your, when you pass away, some of your funds go to a Catholic approved charity and we were more than happy to do that but with that also we did uh power of attorney statements which we hadn't done before for our finances and for medical conditions and it was important for us to be able to choose people if something god forbid happened to my wife and i who shared our catholic values to make end of life uh, ethical medical treatments for us yeah yeah we've had to think of the same because of our children because it's not just finding people whom you can trust to raise your children but whom you can trust to raise them Catholic. Yeah. Right. Same. Yeah. And we find out, you know, how much the people in our lives love us, but also what degrees of certainty or uncertainty we have with regard to our belief that they can and will do that for us. One thing that I'm not uncertain of though. (laughs) I thought I was like, is he going to turn this into, because it's not going to be an easy transition. Not an easy transition. But you are certain of something, Lewis. You're explication of Bonaventure's argument for the existence of God is just beautiful. This episode is going to be devoted to that. I appreciate you calling it beautiful. I don't know if it is, but thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into that, maybe Alex uh, and Lewis too, feel free to jump in since we have a theologian and a philosopher here. If you could explain to us first who Bonaventure is 
and then also why and in what situations would the proofs for the existence of God be beneficial for a Catholic to be aware of and to know and to understand? I want you to take the Bonaventure question, Lewis. I always answer the Bonaventure question. Yeah. So ask the guy who's not the Bonaventure scholar. Be the Did... last the questions. <laughs> yes, you do the Bonaventure. Oh, that's sorry. <laughs> in the 1200s, there was a recent revival in Europe of Christian faithful through the charisms of Francis and Dominic de Guzman. So Franciscans and Dominicans come on the scene to help rejuvenate the church with their particular charisms, and they continue to this day. St. Francis had Bonaventure as one of his followers. Thomas Aquinas was a follower of Dominic de Guzman. And so, Why do you keep saying Dominic's last name but not Francis's? Why are you doing that? De Bernardone. De Bernardone. You got to get that Godfather going. De Bernardone. <laughs> yeah. I'm just curious. No, I'm, it is totally. I, I think it's, it's because not even like a dig. I'm just like. I think it's because you? of familiarity, right? Okay. Because, I mean, being at USF, like, oh, Francis, we, we just Francis, think of Francis yeah. all the time. Francis. And Bonaventure. Yeah. Of Assisi. So. <laughs> De Bernardone. Yeah, but not, you got to get the hands the up, hands. right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. But think the listener can't. Listener, just pretend my hands were up. Yeah, so In a stereotypical Italian gesture. Yeah, that's right. Because we are all about stereotypes on this podcast. Yeah. Wow. But hey, listeners, that was told by an Italian. So untouchable. Francis is an Italian. He is. And yeah. so is Bonaventure. So is and Thomas. So is Thomas. Yeah, a bunch of Italians. A bunch of Italians. Yeah, a bunch of uh, Italians walk into a bar and we get theology. You know what? That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I have to wipe a tear from my eye. Yeah. So um, the 1200s is when we see. Bonaventure doing his work as a scholar in the Franciscan strain and Thomas Aquinas doing his work in the Dominican strain. And they knew each other. I'd say they were friends. We don't have any evidence of their interaction aside from the fact that they were in the same place at the same time, that is the University of Paris. And then, interestingly enough, there are certain questions because medieval scholastic literature is set up by like questions. And then they'll have answers. They'll have, you know, objections, reply, then replies to the objections. And you'll see Bonaventure and Thomas tackle the same question, but the objections and the replies are flipped. (laughs) And the answer is the contrary answer. So it does seem like they're shots across the bow. But I can't imagine they were not together and friends. Yeah. Like, I do not imagine any animosity between the two. Yeah. I felt robbed. It was only after I was finishing my doctorate that I discovered Bonaventure for the first time. Tell that story. That's good. Yeah. So many people know Thomas Aquinas and the way that philosophy is taught in many programs across the States, not all, but many of them is we talked about this in the enlightenment episode, people in philosophy, largely most of my colleagues, not at St. Francis, most of my colleagues are secular atheists. Many are hostile to religion. Most of them, they just don't care. But for this reason, they don't have a lot of sympathy or really understanding of philosophy from about the time of Christ to about the time of Descartes, about zero to 1600, 1600 years, the bulk of history and the Western tradition, we just skip over. And so for people who go into it, well, maybe you'll touch a little bit of Augustine, three to four hundreds, maybe you'll do Aquinas in the 1200s, and that's about it. And so my program was better than most in covering the medieval era and the late ancient and early medieval, I didn't get Bonaventure until I was about to graduate. And I found his, uh, on the six days of creation, 
And I was just blown away. And I remember going into some of my professor's offices with an accusatory tone, like, <laughs> how can you say that I have a doctorate in philosophy <laughs> with a focus on the history of philosophy? And I've never heard of this book. What is wrong with you people? Why is this not on the comprehensive exams oh, yeah. in our first and second uh -huh. years? But it was beautiful. And right, so what Thomas and Bonaventure do, they do them in different ways. There's a few things they share in common because- They're scholastics. That, yeah, at that the era, century. they did things in a similar way. They both have arguments for the existence of God. One might ask why we do this sort of thing. And the reason they did that sort of thing, among many other reasons, is the reason we're doing things like this podcast, right? It's interesting. There's also an apologetic layer to it. By that, I mean, people wonder whether the life of the mind has anything to do with our life of faith. And the short answer is yes. And things like arguments for the existence of God are part of that larger story that show how the mind and the heart go together. Yeah. So to kind of get like right at the meat of the question, I've been giving this argument now for uh, about three or four years. And I've seen the power in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Do you want to share quickly just brief synopsis? You teach a class called Faith and Reason at the University. Yeah. Which is meant to. Go ahead. Yeah. So I teach a class called Faith and Reason. It was called apologetics. And that meant that nobody would ever take it because who knows what that word even means if you're a common college student. So we changed it to Faith and Reason. And basically, it's, it is an apologetics course. It's a defense of the Christian tradition. And so, I mean, partly I would answer in a most general sense about the question of the existence of God is that people want answers to their questions. Yeah. And people have questions. Humans are questioning beings. It is part of the human condition. Like, we're the only animal we know of that asks questions. It's something about unique about us. We look for answers. And the fact question comes from questio which is the same word we get the word quest, quest from, yeah. to ask a question presumes there's an answer, right? If I was in my office just, you know, flapping stuff all over heck and throwing things and ruffling through drawers and you came in, you'd probably ask me. What are you doing? Or, what, what, are, yeah, or <laughs> what are you looking for, right? Yeah, yeah. If I turned back and said nothing, <laughs> you'd be like, oh, he's sick. <laughs> I also like, because of the etymology, you could also say that humans are the only ones who quest. That's true. Yeah. 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 We go on quests. Yeah. 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 I like the Mandalorian. I've been quested. Yeah. This is in Star Wars. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> but I, I, just, I just want to make a quick point to for listeners. We talk about evangelization in a lot of ways. And one of the dimensions of evangelization, especially more recently, is to go and seek people where they are. And while not every person you encounter has a set of intellectual obstacles to the faith, there are people who do. Absolutely. Uh, and so it's important, just as it's important to proclaim the gospel and speak about Christ, for some people, evangelization is answering the type of questions so, that Bonaventure is trying to answer. So yeah, two things. And one that I think can lead into the argument itself, and hopefully we've you know, if we need to come back to this question about what's the point of apologetics, what is the point of proofs for the existence of God, or theodicies, because theodicies have a place too. Maybe not in the hospital room, but they have a place. What's theodicy? Theodicy are accounts uh, for the existence of evil and how God can exist while there is evil in the world. And they can move into triumphal, like what's God going to do about evil and stuff. Yeah. And one of the reasons I think this is an excellent subject for this podcast is, we've mentioned this before, 
a lot of people have bumper stickers doing their thinking for them. And oh so gosh, I can't yeah. mention the number of students I have who say things like, well, you can't prove there's a God, but you can't prove there isn't a God. Like, no, no. Even the pagans knew there was, there's proofs. Oh, We're yeah. flopping over with proofs. Yeah. I mean, do you think about it like, oh yeah, so many proofs. And like, you know, it is true. Like you see a bumper sticker and there's a fish called Jesus and there's a fish called Darwin and the Darwin fish is eating the Jesus fish. And then I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but like are people in their car going, wait a second, that fish is way bigger than the other one. <laughs> I guess Darwin wins. Yeah. Or Darwin is a communicant eating <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and we have found Christ in the Darwin fish. bumper sticker. Bumper sticker. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we are we've got to be at like 933 places at this point. <laughs> we're, we're getting closer to 10,000 every day. Yeah. So when I say there's proofs, people are so unused to hearing that. I give the simplest ones, the ones that most philosophers think, well, I've, I had that for breakfast and I can do something better and I can refute that. But my students, like they're hungry and they see these new things new to them. Yeah. But when I heard your Bonaventure, when you were, you were going on about it, I think we're helping to build your deck and uh, you started explaining it. And I said, say that again, say that again. And you finally got to a specific premise in the argument, right? Arguments. Being has one, only one contradiction. Yeah. And in philosophy, an argument isn't like... Why did you use up the toilet paper? Why didn't you put a new roll on, right? <laughs> like, we don't mean yelling. Most people, I mean, this is another vocab problem, right? So when I talk about arguments in philosophy. <laughs> Listeners, uh, our, our dear don't colleague, <laughs> Alex, almost uh, spewed his Diet Pepsi across the Yeah, we, we don't own these mics. Don't, don't spew that through your nose. Well, don't <laughs> make jokes like that. That are super funny. Yeah. So an argument for most people in common parlance is yelling at people with words, right? But an argument in philosophy is it's like a proof in geometry. Like most people who've done geometry proofs in high school, that's what we mean in philosophy. When you give an argument, you're giving a proof. Oh, yeah. You're giving reasons that through the rules of logical inference guarantee the truth of the conclusion that they support. Right. And, and so when you give this kind of argument, you're giving people reasons in a place where they've never seen reasons before. And you were giving me these premises. The premises are the, the given truths that you'll use to motivate the reasoning, right? And you finally explained one because I kept asking, what do you mean by that? And when you explained it, I thought, that is the clearest, best argument for God's existence. And I love many, but it was so clear. It's cool to hear you say that too, because I remember when we first started talking about the question of the existence of God, you kind of had a real kind of almost laissez-faire sort of attitude of like, all of them work. They're fine. I have, I which, which one's the best in the moment? really ad hoc. And so to see you come to love this argument as much as I do is really cool. And I think you still have that ad hoc approach and people are going to require, you know, I've been given this argument now for about three years. I give it in the faith and reason and I give it in Franciscan tradition, but I do a lot deeper dive in the faith and reason because it's a junior level class. But I will say two things to kind of transition from your question, yeah. Justin, into the argument itself. The first is I get reflections, I get emails, I get statements from students all the time that say how much removing intellectual barriers has helped them and their faith, how it's helped them evangelize, or how it has helped them understand that their own faith is a very intellectual faith. Right. Because there's this common notion out there that like, oh, religion's a crutch and you know, rationality, like religious people use faith instead of reason and they don't care about evidence and they're anti-science and all this. And it's all bunk. It's all just garbage. And in fact, 
Christianity, in particular, Catholic Christianity, is one of the most logically rigorous worldviews I have ever encountered as a philosopher and a theologian. We make very clear, like, if things don't cohere with reason, they're false. And there will never be revelation from God that doesn't cohere with reason, because that would be false. So getting them to see that their religion is actually very intellectual. But I will also add that there is a student who has been an atheist. He, for decades, I would say, he's one of our older students. He came into my class. Some of the, some holes have been kind of poked in his atheism, but he introduced himself as, you know, I'm an atheist. I'm, you know, he's a theist now. And he came to me. After we did this argument class, he came to me and he said, I was on the phone with my sister and I said, you know, hey, sis, I think I'm a theist. And she said, why? He said, one of my professors gave me this argument and I've been racking my brain for two weeks trying to figure out if there's anything possibly wrong with it and I can't refute it. And that is, I think, the actual truth. It's impossible to refute. One other thing I want to help to set up, and yeah, that student story is we don't always see the fruits of our work. When we can have a student who shares those things with us and with whom we can, I think, for some of us, also see a budding friendship, not just what God has done for someone through us, but also what God is setting up for us as well. It's wonderful. People always come up to me and they say, there's no evidence for God. And it's so interesting because there is evidence for God, but let's say there's not. Let's just, for the sake of argument, say the only thing we have is logic and ideas. We have no actual evidence for God's existence. And so you just ask them, like, oh, okay, so then, like, you don't believe in things unless you have, like, literal empirical evidence, right? So you've got to get rid of numbers. You've got to get rid of justice. You've got to get rid of love. You've got to get rid of your memories, probably, because... You know, most of them, they have a connection to the chemicals in your brain, but, you know, who knows what kind of narrations are just junk. You've got to get rid of most arguments that you'd be able to have because you're probably using logical principles like the law of non-contradiction, which we have no, nobody goes out and says, I'm going to study all the data for non-contradiction out there. There's no, there, you don't look under a rock and say, oh, there's 17. That's great because we've had to go from 16 to 18 for like the last 2000 years and it sucked. I'm glad we finally found it. Like these things are not material. They're yeah. not evidentiary in that kind of way. And not just numbers, but all mathematical constructs. Absolutely. And, and statistics, which is behind most empirical study. Right. And the premise that you have to have empirical evidence, which itself it's, is, it's, is it's, not. It's not an empirical, provable, laboratory studyable statement. It's a premise, not a conclusion. Yeah, and we should actually do a whole episode on this at some point. So if listener, you're like, yeah, what about, what about, like, okay, yeah, we get that this is a broad stroke covering it, but we believe in things that we don't have traditional evidence as it's formulated by the modern mind for things we believe in all the time, all the time. And so the question of whether or not we have evidence is somewhat skewed, but also logical demonstrations enough, even if we don't have the kind of empirical evidence that people, I think you do. Mm -hmm. I mean, read Joseph Spitzer's New Proofs for the Existence of God. He provides tons of evidence. Yeah. But, you know. And I think part of the problem today is there is a misunderstanding of what proofs are, and there is an unexamined double standard for what counts as a proof and whether a proof is successful. So for instance, if someone asked for you to prove the existence of the physical world, and you use the same standard for saying you can't prove God's existence, you couldn't prove the physical world either. If all you do is you say, well, point at this and touch this, well, that's, that's called begging the question 
in logic. It means you haven't proven anything. You're pointing to the thing you're trying to conclude and using that as your premise. Right. And if you're trying to use as the premise the thing you're trying to conclude, you can do that, but you haven't given an argument that's not tautological, that doesn't just go in a small, tight circle, right? And so if we say, look, I know there's a God. He's changed my life. I've met him. He said, well, that's what you think. But <laughs> it's like, I know there's a God for the same reason I know there's a physical world because I'm in contact with it. So the problem is there's a double standard at play that many people aren't aware that they're employing when they think, well, you can't have proofs over there the way you can have proofs. No, you can. So either they both work or they both don't work. But for many people, they don't understand they're being unfair when it comes to looking at how the logic works. And it is logic, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just, I feel this way. And the logic of an argument I mentioned before, like the way that we use it in common parlance, the place where you're standing, the place where you find yourself. But a, a premise is the thing that you grant. You say, well, for the sake of argument, will you grant me this? And someone will say, okay, that sounds reasonable to me, right? And the way that an argument is supposed to work, if it works, meaning the premises actually support the truth of the conclusion, is different from whether it works psychologically, right. persuasively. And the persuasion is this. If I grant you those premises and I can follow the laws of logic, I see how your conclusion has to come and stand as a true statement as well. Follow. And if the premises that I've granted you are ones that I think are reasonable, I now have psychological reasons for believing in the conclusion that wasn't clearer to me earlier. So there's the logical question of the proof and there's the persuasive question of the proof. And what you brought out in that Bonaventure argument was premises that I would say are ungainsayable, meaning no one can really doubt them and actually be serious. Mm -hmm. And once they're granted, the logic flows to a conclusion that you cannot stop. And so for that reason, the logic is fine. That's why I said there's many arguments for God's existence I love because the logic works. But psychologically speaking, because the premises are ones that cannot be gainsaid, it's just a beautiful argument. And some people say, well, everybody's not convinced that God exists, therefore we can't know. That's just ridiculous. There are a lot of things that people don't agree on and aren't persuaded by, but that doesn't mean the logic is wrong. I mean, there are presumably people who think the world is flat. We don't think, well, we don't know what shape the world is then. But also, I think the way you talk about it, the way it flows, and honestly, I think it works as both a priori and an a posteriori argument, depending on how you set it up. But here's the basic thing. What do those right? two things mean? Our a priori arguments are arguments that start from first principles, so things we take for granted and then move to a conclusion. They're like geometry proofs, so mathematicians right. love them. Based on logic alone, what can I conclude? And a posteriori is starting from behind or from after. It's starting with data and moving down. So like a watchmaker argument for the existence of God would be an a posterior argument. Or It's like a forensic argument. It's a right. detective. What can I... How can I move backward from the evidence that I'm looking at? What story makes right. the most sense of the data? Traditionally, it would be like kind of classes inductive versus deductive, but that's not exactly, that can be a little bit problematic. But anyway, so that's the basic idea. You can set this one up either way, but here's the simple argument. Here it is in two sentences. Okay, this is what Bonaventure says. If you grant me that something exists, then something has always existed. Therefore, God exists. There it is. This has been 10,000 Places. <laughs> We're going to come back at you with the Bonaventure argument, the ontological argument from the existence of God from Bonaventure. But in the meantime, Justin, you've been really quiet this episode. 
Yeah, my engagement with Bonaventure is on a completely different set of questions. <laughs> yeah, probably the ones. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're wondering whether the rug just got pulled out from under your feet, this is a two-part episode. Ah. <laughs> so we wanted to give you the, you just gave us the argument, right? Mm -hmm. But it's one thing to hear it, and it's another thing to understand it. Right. And so I think really unpacking it, like I said before, because I do this for a living, and I had to listen to you several times before it became clear to me why those premises led to that conclusion and why those premises could not be doubted. But that's the argument. It is the argument. Yeah. It's exactly the argument. Yeah. Give it to us one more time so that people know you're not going to yeah. explain it yet. You're just giving yeah. it right now. <laughs> All right. Here you go. Here we go. If you grant me that something exists, then something has always existed. Therefore, God exists. Yeah. See the syllogism thing again. Yeah, that's a nice, tight little syllogism. Takes me back to geometry class. Yeah. There's a reason he's called the Seraphic Doctor. Seraphic! <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, folks, for listening. Sorry if we did pull the rug out on you, but we are going to clean this all up in the next episode on Bonaventure's Ontological Argument. Until then, I'm Alex Giltner. I'm Lewis Pearson. And I'm Justin Aquila. And we'll see you next time. On 10,000 places. places. Yeah. We're going to have to work on that. <laughs> Sorry, I spliced. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.